They F you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were effed up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, delighted to be joining you again with the Brendan Option, brought to you by Immaculata Productions, doing outstanding work, pioneering work in the area of Catholic communications. We just finished our series on faith. The last podcast was on marriage, and we thought this might be a good time to begin a new series, exploring the area of good works. So we're calling this Doing Catholicism. The actual nuts and bolts, the belts and belt and braces. And speaking of belt and braces, you may be a little shocked at my choice of poem uh, opening, but it's hard to beat Philip Larkin for gritty English realism. Now Larkin, had, he had a bitter side as you could hear, he also had a very lovely side, but certainly there's a lot of bitterness in that poem. Very hard thing to get right, parenting. I don't know how parents do it. I just do not know how they do it. I think most Catholic parents will never see purgatory, just on the basis of what they've had to, had to do and put up with. They've served their purgatory already. But I do think it's better to start with the reality rather than... I'm not going to start talking about the Holy Family because the Holy Family is forever perfect. And sometimes that's like a cliff. Now, that's almost blasphemy because in Jesus Christ, God has come right among us. But I'm just speaking, just we're frail human beings and sometimes it just looks like too much. As I heard one Catholic educationalist put it, she was describing the title of a talk that was being given and it was uh, on virtue. And she said her first reaction was, oh, do I really need this in my life? Well, I'm afraid to do. <laughs> but I can well understand the, the way you just, your head caves in and you feel tired. Talking about parenting now and I suppose you're going to expect me to get you know to just get on my hobby horse and rent and that's always pleasant to do particularly when you're a celibate priest and you don't have to raise a family you can just give out stink about how they the players on the field are playing the match it's easy to judge look let's start with Larkin let's just embrace this and start with it there are other ways you could start but we'll start there and the truth is that the family nowadays is battered it's like a prize fighter it is absolutely hammered, but it's still there. And just as interestingly, because remember, it's human beings we're talking about. The dream is still there. So what's interesting now is the huge effort that gay people have made, for instance, to earn the legal right to construct family and to have it recognised as family. This business of marriage, of family, doesn't seem to go away irrespective of what life you choose. Because I know that some gay people who had no patience with the Catholic Church were strongly against marriage because they saw the gay lifestyle as bohemian, as alternative, as out on the edge, as liminal. And they didn't want to lose that. No, this dream of family, this dream, to paraphrase, if you like, Hugh Leonard, this dream of that light in the window of the little cottage at night, that calls you home like a lighthouse, that warns you off from the rocks, that, that just marks out the centre of the world. This dream of family has never lost 
its powerful romantic and emotional attraction. And remember that the family is of the natural law. The church doesn't claim to have invented it. Like marriage, the church doesn't claim to have invented it. This is of the natural law. And our Lord Jesus Christ, when he entered upon flesh, when he was incarnated, he was incarnated into a family. He grew up in obedience under the authority of his parents as a good Jewish boy. I really think we have to keep this in mind. He led from the front. Now, the dream is still there. The dream, even with us now, the dream is still there. And here's the thing. It's tied to place. Because human beings live in space and time. And those are our limitations. In this life, our mortal limitations. And remember the word mortal. Its root is mars, the Latin for death. That which is subject to death. That which has an allotted time. So the mortal rules are space and time. Home and brood. Stock, blood, love, solidarity, support, protection, family. Now you may say you're romanticising the family. If you say that, I think I see what you're saying. But I regard romance as something far more dangerous maybe than you do. I am romanticising the family, but I'm not, I'm not romanticising so much as, as calling attention to the romance that is the family. And there is a terrible side to it. If you remember the core story from Tom Wolfe I told to illustrate it, families get to know you so well that they can shut you up with a word. You can climb as high as you want because they remember when they grew up with you. There are people there who wiped your backside when you were one. So you just don't get to ride around on your high horse with family. Now that can go too far. I said this is genuinely romantic. It's liminal. The edge is there. The edge is there constantly. That can go too far. Family can be controlling. It can be destructive. It can. Yeah, all families by nature are dysfunctional because we're human and we're dysfunctional. To be human is to be screwed up. If you're not screwed up, there's something wrong with you. If you're not screwed up, you're screwed up. If that makes any sense. Human is frail. Human is broken. Beautiful, magnificent, broken, like a ruined Greek temple. And that's all going to come out in family life. There's no more dangerous place. I've often said this. There's no more dangerous place to sit. You need to be a real adventurer for this. You need to be as tough as nails for this than an Irish family Christmas dinner. You wait till everyone has a few on them. And your dad and uncle Seamus remember that they can't stand each other. And they've had a few jars and a good dinner. I mean, one of the most famous rows at Christmas. It was penned exquisitely by James Joyce in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I once heard Senator David Norris read this uh, many, many years ago when he addressed the, I think it was Literary and Debating Society in Maynooth. If it was that, maybe it was the English Society. And he read that part in the early section, maybe the first chapter, I can't remember, of Portrait of the Artist. He read it absolutely magnificently, doing the accents and everything. And you had everything going wrong there. Sex, religion and politics. The whole thing came out at the family table because it was, of course, about Charles Stuart Parnell. And some were for him and some were against him. And, and Parnell had had the affair with Kitty O'Shea and the whole business came out. And it ruined the Christmas dinner. No family's no joke. I am a romantic and I do regard the family as romantic. And you're lucky to get out alive. That's romance. That's real romance. Remember, romance always contains the absolute. A romance that isn't written on the edge is not a romance. Home and brood. Beautiful, ugly, safe, dangerous, protecting, 
destroying the very crucible of life and an abiding dream with us all our lives. For good or ill, the family stay with you. Your whole life psychologists will tell you that. Where, what better place to start so? We started the reality as it is. It's a dysfunctional genesis. But genesis depicts dysfunction very early on. Don't forget Eden. Don't forget the serpent. Don't forget Cain and Abel. Don't forget the flood and what have you. They, they, all of that is present there in Genesis. Genesis tells the story of romance, including romance going wrong. And romance going wrong is almost tautologous. Romance by its nature goes wrong. Romance is a rocky road. And what have you in Genesis? You have recurring blessing of Adam, Noah, Abraham, and so on. You have blessing and you have promise of land, promise of progeny. Do you hear this? Land and progeny. You will have a place and you will go on. And all brought together in covenant. To the extent that scholars would say that the creating God, the God depicted in Genesis, the God who reveals himself in Genesis, is a covenantal God even prior to creation. He creates covenantally. He is covenantal in his intention, in the intention behind his creative act. Insofar as you can break down God's activity into intention and act and all the rest of it. And the covenants all touch on progeny. The covenants are irrelevant if you don't talk about progeny. A future. And so today I'm talking about children. Listen to me. There is absolutely no point in blathering on and on about discernment if you don't realise that nothing matters but the will of God. Right? There's absolutely no point to that. You go to the bottom line always. Look at it. Ask what it is in itself. Look straight at it. And there's absolutely no point in twittering on about child protection and about education and about parenting and all the rest of it if you don't start from the premise that children are promise and blessing and future. Children are covenant. You start from that. So having people say, oh, I, I don't want children, which, by the way, makes a marriage null ab initio, right from the beginning. A marriage is null in the Catholic Church if you start with an intention not to have children. A couple may not be able to have children. That's irrelevant. It is the openness and obedience to God that matters. Children are a tremendous gift. Saying, oh, I, I couldn't bring children into such an evil world. That is a decadent viewpoint. This evil old world needs children. It needs blessing. It needs promise and land and multitudes of progeny and a future. It needs children. Peter Hitchens, the English public intellectual, writer, journalist, Peter Hitchens commented that Turkey was one of the few places he saw where complete strangers would walk up literally take uh, the child of a stranger up out of a pram, hold it up and shout, thanks be to God. What a wonderful reaction to the sight of a child, because the sight of the child is divine promise. Every child is, in a sense, the holy child. The sight of the child is promise and covenant. It, God is with us. We have a future. When Cormac McCarthy, the American novelist, wrote his dystopian vision, uh, The Road, about a post-apocalyptic future. It's an absolutely horrible novel, brilliantly written, and an absolutely horrible film, brilliantly made and acted, Viggo Mortensen. What have you? You have a father and son. 
and in that blasted, charred, barren land, permanently dusk, with nothing growing, you still have the future. It's as Chesterton said about the crusade in Lepanto, tiny and unafraid, comes down along a winding road. The child, the future, this dream never leaves us. Before Christ was born, the Roman poet Virgil was dreaming of of a semi-divine child who who would usher in a new age. This dream never leaves us. The birth of a child. I remember when my first nephew was born, and he was the first of the next generation. We used to all sit around him as if he were a fire. We'd just sit and watch him. It was the future. And I want to offer you a counterposition to Larkin. Larkin says, but they were effed up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. I want to offer you a much more grave and consistent older generational image, if you like, than the fools in hats and coats, soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Go to Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, to the famous prayer, the Shema which is a part of the morning and evening prayers of the Jewish people. And it is said a night prayer by us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them thoroughly to your children and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for a reminder between your eyes, and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house, and upon your gates. Hear, O Israel. That is a a younger generation which doesn't have to suffer the added passion and agony and difficulty of not being able to trust the generation which brings it, gives it life and brings it up. Life is tough enough as it is and nobody escapes Gethsemane or Calvary. But at least to have confidence in what you come from, be it ever so humble. To have confidence in, as O'Crehon called them, Tomás O'Crehon, on Berts, the two who put the music of the Gaelic language in my ears, to have confidence in the two who put the music of language in your ears and taught you thereby to think and to be a rational person who could know, love and serve God in this life and be with him forever in the next. What a magnificent call. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one and you shall praise him and talk about him you shall empty pubs talking about him and you shall talk about him to your children and pass it on to them and tell them who loves them and that they have a future as they reminded you you had a future now that's where you start with child protection and that's where you start with good parenting and that's where you start with education if you don't start there there's not much point in starting because one way or another we're going to screw this up we're human But my goodness, the hash, the pig's breakfast that you're going to make of it, the dog's dinner, you will render it if you don't start from there. That child is a gift from God and a living sign of the covenant. A child is quasi-sacramental and a tremendous gift. 
I was in education for years one way or another, chaplain, teacher, school principal. The vast majority of children, in spite of the natural mischief and evil that we all have, the vast majority of them, they were as good as gold. And the ones who weren't have been screwed up by adults. Let down, betrayed, abused, scandalised, saddened, grief-stricken. That's what had been done to them. And I cannot begin to say, I mean, parents, I, I remember a man saying to me once, and in a way I admired the honesty. I, I think I commented on this before. He gave out about how much his, his kids were costing him. And he said, jeepers, if I knew this, I'd never have done it. Can you imagine saying that about your kids? I can imagine a man saying, I'd love to strangle, strangle that little fiend. I could imagine that. There's a red-blooded Irish father, like. I could imagine that. But imagine bringing it down to money for the love of God, like, going on about what your kids cost you. Your flesh and blood, like. I remember what struck me. We went to, myself and a friend, when I was a student at the Irish College in the late 80s, you couldn't come home at Christmas, but you could go anywhere in Europe. It was an interesting rule. They, they felt that it was, you know, Ireland was small and it was remote and Irish students needed to expand their limit. We didn't really appreciate the offer, but it was obligatory, so we had to. So we knew a priest who was Hungarian and we went off to Budapest and, and Hungary at the time was just coming out of communism. So, I mean, it was extremely drab and it was extremely forbidding. But uh, Hungary always, it never had food shortages. The food was fantastic and the restaurants were dirt cheap. And we were just fascinated. The, the shops were beautiful, really old fashioned in the way they did things and hardly anything in most of them. But there was no shortage of food and good food. And one of the things we noticed was how badly people were dressed. You know, the clothes weren't good. They weren't well cut. They weren't well made. They were very drably dressed. But their kids were very well dressed. I was very struck by that. The young people had jeans, which were a huge luxury item in the communist countries. They had nice clothes. They were dressed as well as young people anywhere at the time in the 80s. But their parents were very badly dressed. And I've seen that. I've seen it in Ireland. You've seen where parents, who might be people of considerable taste, have just, they've made sacrifice after sacrifice so their kids could have this, that and the other. And I remember it being said to one lecturer I had when he commented that he had five daughters and in a very jolly way somebody said, you poor man. But he came back very serious. He said, oh no, he said, I'm not, I'm not poor. He said, I'm poor financially. He said, I haven't a penny. But he said, I am a rich man. He said, I, I just couldn't begin to tell you how rich they've made me. A friend of mine described, any time they talk about their kids, like, and again, bringing up kids is expensive, there's no doubt. It's easy to talk. It's expensive. But, they, but they're such a blessing, they say. And that's what they are. A blessing. A sacramental sign of the future. A, a quasi-sacramental sign of the future. And that's what I'm saying today. That's what I most want to say in this, this thing of doing Catholicism. I say, hear, O Israel. You start with this. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now get out there and tell everyone about him. Now we go to our Lord Jesus Christ, the new Adam, who has fulfilled the prophets, the one promised by the prophets, the ultimate and perfect prophet, the suffering servant of God, talked about in Wasn't Isaiah. Poor old Jeremiah had an awful time as well. And what have you in Christ? You have He personifies in himself the new and lasting covenant, the blood of the new covenant, the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for many. You remember? This is him. Him. Capital H. Him. The child. The true future. The kingdom 
still to come and yet already among us. The future already here. To the extent that, I mean, people will laugh now at the way the altars were organised in the past, you know, the priest with his back to the people. It's a complete misreading of it. And I'm not going on a rant against the new liturgy, by the way, which is the liturgy I mostly say and love. But I'm just saying that Ratzinger, you know, the Pope, as Pope Benedict, he, he came out and he said, isn't in the spirit of the liturgy. He came out and he said, you know, the seminal change wasn't the change of language. The Book of Common Prayer, the Anglicans had the most glorious English for their worship. You can have magnificent language in, in any language, although Latin was particularly lovely. But he said the big change was the ad orientum. Because the priest and the people face the same way towards God, towards the East, towards the cosmic future. The child, the covenant, the promise, the land. You see this? It never stops. This dream never stops. It goes on and on and on. And, and is personified in Christ. In Christ we are given it. And what does our Lord Jesus Christ say? He reiterates the Shema, but in a different way. Now, it is he who is to be preached. Matthew 28, 19, famous. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hear, O Israel. When I was a student at the Gregorian University, the atrium of the university was dominated by a magnificent, impressive statue of our Lord with the, the hand out and the finger and underneath in Latin, Eontes, Docetes, Domnes, Gentes. Go, make disciples of all nations. What a thing to have in the atrium of a Catholic university. I'll tell you that when I saw that, I said, these guys are serious. Go make disciples of all nations. That's what you as a Catholic parent are supposed to be doing. Don't be offended. I'm not talking down to you. I'm just indicating it in the same way as I tell you that the restaurant is on that side of the street. The guard of the station is down at the end. And if you keep going, you'll get to Clare Castle Bar. That's what you're supposed to be doing. If that's inconvenient, I don't know what to say to you. You have been given an incredible gift. You have the Holy Child. Now, you mightn't feel grateful and the Holy Child can be a pain in the neck. But that's what you have. Everything starts from there. It generates its own logic. It is for you to tell that child the story of God's mighty deeds, of God's love for him or her, God's intentions towards them, his plans for them, and the future that lies ahead of them. And all that you plan after that has to happen in that light. So please don't come back to me and say, oh, well, I'm as Catholic as the next of them, but these nuts who are going on about homeschooling and the Catholic school is not being good enough. I'm sorry. I'm not saying the Catholic schools aren't good enough, although I'm afraid there is good reason for being worried about Catholic education. But I don't mean by that to say the Catholic teachers aren't good people or that there isn't a lot of good work going on in the schools. I just mean that what we're doing tragically is not working. Used to, I think, but it's not anymore. It's working to an extent, but it's not working to the extent we need. And as I said, you always make a pig's breakfast of this, but wow, this is a, this is a pig's banquet, like we're making a real party out of this, I'll tell you. I, I'm sorry, but that's crucial. As a parent, you should be obsessed with the education of your child. You should be a pain in the posterior. You should be a nuisance about this. Now, I was a principal and you wouldn't mind fathers coming into you because you could, with a man, you could kind of reach an accommodation fairly soon, but you were dead if the mother came in. And it was usually the mother because she wasn't going to be bought off. You, you wouldn't stop talking about football with her, even if she was into football. 
women had a different take on their sons was immensely, it was very detailed. She had a detailed picture of her son and she expected that to be addressed in the conversation. So, I mean, you were as well to break out the tea and biscuits because you're going to be there for a while. And like I look back on it and I say, no, they were right. And I was wrong. I mean, not completely wrong. I just was wrong in the sense that I was lazy and I was impatient and I didn't want to spend ages talking about just one student, which meant I didn't fully understand what I was doing as a Catholic educator because Catholic school will spend a whole evening talking about nothing but one student. I've heard of the same in Protestant schools. I've heard of housemasters who would cheerfully take somebody aside and spend ages talking about their son. This is the centre of what we're at. It's absolutely crucial. So if you're a Catholic parent, the education of your son or daughter is a crucial issue. And it has to start in the home. Does that mean you have to be the holy family? Yes, it does. Does that mean you will be the holy family? No, it doesn't. You're going to make a hash of it. But there are different ways of making a hash of something. There are grades of failure. I've said this about the priesthood. Try to fail well. And I have huge respect for what you're doing. I don't talk talk about this lightly. I have some sense, even though I don't have my own children, I have some sense of it from two things. One, I used to work in education. And two, I'm a priest. And I am addressed as father for a reason in that I have spiritual paternity. And I do understand, I do to some extent have a sense of what you're going through to some extent. It's no joke. Because here's the thing. You are not called upon to brainwash and indoctrinate. Now this is crucial. And you try that and it'll go wrong. Because you're dealing there with a thoroughbred. That's not a cart horse you're trying. You're dealing with a human being. You're dealing with somebody who has a rational mind. They'll turn on you. And I'm not saying that's the only reason not to do it. The reason not to do it is that you shouldn't be doing it because you should not be stifling the conscience of another. You should be forming it. You should be forming that conscience. And so parents often tell me that one of the most unnerving experiences they have is when that little face, dominated by eyes that never seem to close, certainly not when they're supposed to close, and ears that seem to work overtime and are as active as those of a hare, and a mind that seems to operate like a tape recorder will say the terrifying words to a parent. But you said, and you can be sure you did say it. But as Jordan Peterson says, youth and inexperience will always lose to old age and treachery. I know I said we were going to town today. We're not, because we're going to do something much more exciting. And then later, oh, facing a teenager. Oh, it's like a, a military tribunal in a banana republic. It only has one sentence. And it hands it out like smarties. Teenagers are no joke to deal with. And their brains are developing rapidly. And they're tickled and quick. And most of them can argue like a barrister in the forecourts. That is absolutely no joke to deal with. And for the first few years they think you're God Almighty. And what do you do with God Almighty? You watch God Almighty. And that's where the trouble starts. But Mammy, you said... And worse still is where in front of the neighbours they go, my daddy said, (laughs) God alone knows what they're going to come out of. And again, the neighbours, one thing they can be sure of is that daddy did say it. They're getting absolutely warmed for warmed what was said in that house because children aren't good at being hypocritical. That comes later. And this goes to the absolute centre of this doing Catholicism. The worship of God is inseparable from the passing on of life and the bringing up of the young. And the passing on of life and the rearing of life are intertwined. Now, I wish I could say to you that you'll get all the support you need, and I'm afraid I can't. It's not that people have ill will. It's not. I know they don't. 
but the church isn't in a great place at the moment. I think Catholic education is under huge pressure from secularising forces and I think those forces are actually intensifying. I think there are a lot of good people on the secular side. I think they're hugely well-intentioned and I'm afraid now that, you know, gradually you're going to see the stuff on sexuality that's going to be taught in these classes, these so-called DOS classes that nobody's been passing much heat on, but I can assure you are becoming very significant, SPHE and CSP and all the like. These classes in which citizenship and social, personal and health education, all this stuff is, is passed on. To put it briefly, we've lost. And it's as well to recognise that. Now, you can well say back to me, well, you're a priest, you're part of the ministerial church, you, you serve us, so you tell us what you're going to do for us. I don't know what I'm going to do for you. Because we haven't put enough thought into it and we haven't planned for it. Because we kept thinking in terms of school, and I don't think we were able to believe the schools would be taken from us. And the schools, really, to an extent, have already been taken from us. We've lost a major cultural battle. And it's mostly like the state hasn't had to raise a finger for the most part to us. It's not like Bismarck and the original culture camp. I mean, something like that, you can fight, you can stand up to it. No, no, it's much harder to fight this. We've lost it on the ground. And we've lost it even among the priesthood, I'm sorry to say. And so one of the unspoken truths, very unpalatable truths, which everyone knows, or almost everyone knows in the Catholic Church in Ireland at present, is that we have lost our schools. And I'm not saying that to judge our teachers or our boards or anything else. The, the issue is bigger than just laying blame in any one direction. We've lost our schools. And our schools are effectively secular. The principal, I had a conversation once about ethos with the principal of a secular school, and he said to me, without any aggression at all, he said to me, I mean, he said, look at it this way. And he referred to an excellent Catholic school in the area. His school was excellent too. An excellent Catholic school in the area. And he said, what are they getting down there? I can't give them here. He said, he said you know, come on, Brendan, be, be honest about this. And I had to admit he was probably right. And the Catholic school he was talking about was probably one of the best in the West of Ireland. You can't legislate for this. It's not amenable to being changed by mission statements. Or putting up pictures of Nano Nagel or Catherine Macaulay or Edmund Ignatius Rice or a picture of the Archbishop or the Bishop or whoever you like and a crucifix and a statue of Our Lady and a nag in a holy water. Okay, and hoping to God that that'll make all the demons go away. Let me assure you that the demons are very comfortable. They know their way around. But they're making tea for themselves down in the kitchenette. So if I were you, I really wouldn't start girding myself for that battle because that battle's over. There are battles still to be fought. I would encourage Catholic parents, to be honest, but please don't take this as a Jeremiah against our Catholic schools at the moment because there are teachers doing their level best and they're doing wonders. So I'm not doing that. I'm just dealing with reality as it's there. I would encourage parents, not just now, let's say if your kids are nearly out of Catholic school, all right, it's fine. They're not going to get much in, in secondary school uh, and that's not the fault often of, let's say, the school. We lost this, the battle in secondary school, really. We, we kind of give up on that, I, I would say, about 50 years ago. I'd say it goes away back. And he, here's the problem, is that I, I think a lot of our schools, you know, Lawrence Kohlberg, the moral psychologist, he, he has all these stages of moral development. I think it's kind of tied to Piaget's theories of moral development, stage theory, and, and he's all these stages of moral development. And he said the stage 
most people, the stage you arrive at around, I think it's maybe 15 to 18, that kind of way, is what he calls the conventional stage of moral, uh, where you've integrated conventional morality, the morality of the time, the mores of the time, which is not nothing, because you can be sure there will be a lot of good in that. Just purely naturally, human beings will generate a lot of good morals, right? And he said that that's actually where most people stay, so that they're defenceless, because that stage tends to produce the legislation. They're defenceless, really, when legislation emerges which is genuinely morally objectionable. They're so used to accepting the convention. And I know of Catholics now who would be very strong Catholics, but very strong conventional Catholics. And I'm just using the the analogy of Kohlberg's stage theory for faith development. Now, there's an American Protestant uh, pastor who has developed a a, a similar thing for faith. I I think his name is Fowler, which is uh, stages of faith based on Kohlberg stuff, you know, from the age of one on, so to speak. And it would be interesting for us to look at that down the line sometime, you know. Conventional faith. I think an awful lot of Catholics are at that. And the trouble is now is that conventional faith isn't really Catholic anymore. It is faith of a kind, but it's not really Catholic anymore. But that's what our kids are being initiated into. So a lot of people who are Catholic really aren't Catholic anymore, if you take my part. I'm not, honestly not trying to insult people. I, I probably will. People will get thick with me, and fair enough. There's, there's no way to discuss this without upsetting. There is no way. But then the way I look at it is, I get upset often enough having to listen to what's said in podcasts, so I'm going to say my bit. There are a lot of Catholics who aren't Catholics. Don't get tribal about it. Because I've said to a few people, you know, your faith is really a more Protestant, a more Anglican faith than Catholicism. I'm not a Protestant. Because, of course, it's a tribe. Catholics aren't Protestants. But actually, a lot of Catholics now have essentially a Protestant faith. If they have that. I am just trying to make sense out of an extremely confused situation. And so you have a lot of these Catholics who effectively have parted company with the church. They no longer accept the authority of their bishop or of the pope. They're effectively not in communion with their bishop. They don't believe in the real presence. There's a huge percentage of Catholics. The Americans are great for doing this kind of research because, of course, sociology, I don't know if it originated in America. I think it originated in Germany, but certainly took on University of Chicago, took on very early in America. I just think that there's a disaster here which has been waiting to happen for ages. And I suspect that the COVID thing is going to actually be the spark or it'll be the shot that'll set the avalanche going. I think it will, like the scandals set an earlier avalanche going. I think this this is kind of the second slide. It's the second great crash in faith terms. And I think the COVID thing will do it with a lot of, a lot of conventional Catholics haven't gone to mass now in in about four months or five months, or it's starting to go back. So if you just conventional faith, it's going to be really tested by that. And passing on your faith to your kids, your kids are even more of the convention than you are, because the whole civilization is driven by technology anyway, and they're soaked in that technology. And they're soaked in its philosophical presuppositions, and they're soaked in, they're soaked, they're marinated in all of this from the earliest times. Because again, we had conventional Catholics in the home. We, the media were just chucking this into the homes the whole time and we'd lost control of our schools. Okay, fine, I've done enough giving out. I, I'm just trying to point out basically that, that conventional Catholic faith and conventional Catholic education are banjaxed. Not feeling great myself, to be honest. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that. And then we can legitimately ask, right, you have kids and you're a believer. 
And you're not a good Catholic, because good Catholics are not good Catholics, if you know what I mean. And they know it. And the better Catholic they are, the worse Catholic they feel. And you have to pass this on to your kids. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You have to pick them up, as Philip Martin Larkin said. You have to pass this on to them. So how do you do this? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that you're just going to have to rediscover something for a start. You're going to have to rediscover your divinely given authority as a parent. You are the first school of the child. You're going to have to get your Catholic mojo. You're going to have to get the sap running again. You don't have the divine authority to treat your children like dirt and walk all over them. You have the divine authority to raise that child. And what do you do? Do you, you indoctrinate? No, you don't indoctrinate. You don't brainwash. You do not take away the independent rational judgment of another human being. You propose the faith to them and you exemplify it. And you fail in both. And you fail rather well. And that's as good as it gets and that's magnificent. That is magnificent. And believe you me, the vast majority of children I've ever had any dealings with had a beautiful sense of fairness, a beautiful sense of justice. And they, your children will be utterly fair to you about that. They will forgive you your faults, your human weaknesses, your hypocrisies, because they'll see the good in your heart and they'll see the love you had for them and they'll see that your love for God was genuine. Incompetent, but genuine. And remember, they're going to make a hash of it themselves. They're just young and they know everything. Now, that's how you start. You are the first teacher. You're going to have to get your confidence. Now, there's nothing more terrifying. I mean, if you were lying on a hospital bed uh, waiting to be taken down to the theatre and you discovered that your surgeon had no experience but endless confidence, that would perhaps not fill you with great confidence. Uh, that kind of confidence is not infectious. Confidence must be backed with competence. You're going to say to me, oh, I had a terrible Catholic education. I, I was born in the 80s. I've never had good catechesis or anything else. Well, you're going to have to pick it up fairly handy. And, and fine, you can tell me it's not fair. Pretend you're like your teenage son and say it's not fair. I'd be, oh, what do you want? Do you want me to pass you the Kleenex? We can cry about this all day if you want. We've made a hash of it. I'm saying that to you as a priest. We're not there for you and we don't have your back. And I'm not saying that to judge my fellow priests, I'm just saying it's the way it is. I'm adding myself in that. But we are more than willing to try to make up for this in the time that's left to us. But you have to start. You have to stand in front of that little child and give an account of your hope. And no, you don't scream at them. Say, you know, say the rosary. Say your prayers you'll go to hell and you'll burn and roast and, and be drizzled in extra virgin olive oil and balsamic. I mean, obviously I'm joking there. That's just going to leave your kid absolutely messed up. You tell them, I believe that God exists and that we're here for a purpose and God loves us all. I can't prove it to you, but I, I believe it in my bones, in my marrow bones. And you have the humility to say that to them and stand in front of them. And I assure you that like St. Paul in front of the council of the Areopagus, you'll get a better hearing than you expect. Even from those sophisticated teenagers. Now, for the first few years, you're going to be the face of God on earth. You know, they say that a ship's captain at sea in the Royal Navy or the United States Navy or whatever it is, he or she is the face of God on earth. The captain has an incredible power at sea. Tremendous jurisdiction. You are the face of God on earth. Now, I, I don't blame you for panicking, 
but you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to keep a dry pair of pants on you. Face the challenge and face up to it. Go out there and, and play a blinder. You go out there and be yourself in front of that kid. I remember hearing of one father who used to sit up if his teenage sons were out late at night. And he, he didn't tyrannise over them. But he'd sit up and wait till they come home. And they used to be quite irritated when they'd come back at two o'clock in the morning to find him still sitting beside the range. All the more so because they knew he probably had work in the morning. And the answer he'd, he'd give them when they'd finished giving out, I do trust you, but I'm your father. He'd turn and go to bed. And they had such respect for that man. He was their father. He had a tremendous duty. So you propose the faith. And you're not compassed for the next generation, as Josani used to say. You are a free individual in your own right. You can, you, you, you can accept or reject God's offer of salvation. You are, are raising another free and rational person who can choose or reject and who must answer for their choice. So you must pray for your children because you cannot supply for their free decisions once they achieve reason and once are free of your authority. You must pray for them and you should start praying for them early. And they should know that you're praying for them. And that's not to make them feel guilty. That's just part of the package. There's no charge. It's what you do. It's what a parent does. The core of our faith is proposed to us in familial terms. Not in terms of abstract, cold abstractions and love, but familial terms. You are my son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Mark 1.11 a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. God to Christ. The faith is proposed to us in familial terms. Where Jesus tells us using the Aramaic word Abba. He said call God your father. Which the Jews didn't really do. Now Abba was uh, an Aramaic word. It's not exactly daddy. It's more like Ahrin in Irish. I think they said the same thing in Russian. Little father. It's affectionate, but it's respectful. Little father. Did you know that they said that in Irish? Ahni, in the Gaeltacht. Little father. And they'll say that to the priest as well. Ahni. I remember one old woman saying to me, I was a curate in the Gaeltacht, and she said, Oh, Ahni, Nildanavin. Oh, little father, little baby. <laughs> At which stage, you know, the metaphors were getting quite confused. <laughs> But you got the point. Those are the terms in which the faith is proposed. They're familial. And remember the life of the Trinity is familial. They're redolent of the promise of land and future. And remember we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. This is Genesis writ large, completed in Jesus Christ. And that's what you're proposing to a child. And if you think that child is going to laugh at you, you're just wrong. You're far too impressed by this world. It's very sure of itself, but it hasn't won the battle or anywhere near it like you think. You're wrong. You go before that austere court of a little child's solemn gaze and they won't laugh at you for saying that. And let me tell you something else. Most teenagers won't laugh at you. They may disagree with you, but they won't laugh at you if it's stated to them humbly and intelligently and competently, even attractively. They will listen gravely to what you have to say. I have never noticed much of a deviation from that. I have been laughed at. Sometimes I deserved to be laughed at because I'd made a hash of what I was doing. 
Sometimes I was just laughed at for my beliefs. And you have to, you have to suck that up. If that's the worst you get, you're doing well. But no, this is well worth doing. And believe you me, if you're a parent, you start from an amazing beginning. You're kicking off from something that's absolutely rock solid. Remember, they will worship, but they will watch. As one watches the deity, they will watch. As the eyes of a servant are on his master, the child will watch you. Don't be afraid of it, but do respect it. Don't mess with it, because that judgment is, is a very serious judgment. Now, I've been talking so far about biological parenting. What an amazing thing to do. You, you pass on the life that's in you. You generate life. You bring it up. Now, sometimes people who have their own children adopt children or foster them. Fantastic people. And sometimes people who can't have children adopt. And I'm going to say something very strange to you now. In some ways, that link can be as strong as, and in some ways, even stronger than the biological one. The Irish, the old Irish noticed that the aristocratic Gaelic families used to foster out their children. To the, the chief would foster out his son, let's say, to ordinary people and they would raise him. And he would only rejoin his father when he had attained manhood. And there was a saying in Irish, I can't quote it in Irish, there was a saying in Irish, dear to a boy is his brother, but dearest of all his foster brother. It was regarded as peculiarly sacred, the link in that to be brought into the hearth of a family, to be allowed to share their family life. And remember that you share somebody's family life, you learn a lot about them. They're letting you see them without their makeup on, before they've combed their hair and washed and shaved, and they're letting you see them. That's a tremendous bond. So to adopt a child, it's not biological parenting, but it is parenting, and it's remarkable parenting in its own right. And so I would say to you, if you're an adoptive parent, everything I have said to you holds true. Everything I've said to you, and God bless you for doing that. Everything I have said to you holds true. You were the face of God for them. Now I'm going to say this by extension because other people act as the Latin legal phrase has it, in loco parentis, in the place of the parent. And I'm going to treat of this at greater length. I'd say we should do a whole podcast, one whole session on teaching, on the teaching profession. It's an incredible profession. And I do know a little bit about it. And I have had the honour of knowing and seeing some of probably the greatest teachers of their time in the West of Ireland. That partakes in parenting. To the extent that traditionally some teachers didn't marry or forgot to marry. And ended up bringing up thousands. Do you remember that film Mr Chips? The elderly teacher, he's been headmaster, he's been teacher, he's been in the school for about 50 years. And he's got, he's retired in the school. And he's just living in the school. His wife is dead and he's still on living in the school. And he's old and dodgy. It's a lovely old black and white film. I don't know whether they made a remake of it since. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. His name is Chipping, but the kids call him Chips. And generations of students have called him Chips. A little boy, a first, first former he meets at the beginning of term, uh, he tells him where he has to go. He doesn't know where he has to go. And he gets talking to the boy. The boy asks him, do you have children, sir? And Mr. Chip says, children? Oh, yes, I have children. Hundreds. And the film shows all the faces. And it's particularly poignant because it's after the war. And some of them are dead. They've died in the war. 
and shows all of the faces coming up, all of them frozen forever in his mind as 17-year-olds when they went out the gate. Oh, it's a tremendous film. I'm, the teaching is an incredible profession. That partakes in parenting. As Kevin Meyer said about an order, I think it was the, the, the Holy Child Convent in, uh, in Dublin, the, the order they didn't smack when everyone else was smacking and smacking hard. Because he said the ethos of the order was that each child is treated as the holy child and one does not smack the holy child. <laughs> and I think that's probably, we, you know, that's probably the attitude we need to have. You know, may, now maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe Joseph and Mary did smack the holy child. <laughs> we don't know that. He was without sin, but you could still annoy your parents, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Let's not go there because I'm just going to expose myself as a complete heretic. Okay, or a theo- at least a theological idiot. But if you take that view, this child is a gift. This child is, is a quasi-sacramental of promise and covenant and a future and salvation. You can't go too far wrong after that. This is the holy child. So I don't blame young parents nowadays for obsessing about the future of education. And I have heard in terror some young Catholic parents declare that they're going to go to America if there isn't more support for homeschooling here because they're not going to, they don't think that by the time their kids are ready to go to school that there will be any religion in schools anymore. And I'm not saying this against the schools, but more thinking in terms of the agenda of the state, with all due respect to it, and the agenda of the media, with all due respect to them, I think they have a point in worrying. They may not be right. I think they are right. And so we really do need to be getting up off our backsides and thinking about how we can support homeschooling or how we can start Catholic schools again. If it's possible to start Catholic schools again, if we're not legislated out of it, we may have to run underground Catholic schools. I don't know. I mean, it could get seriously crazy. I don't know how far this woke stuff is going to go in government, you see. There doesn't seem to be much will in government or in the media to stand up to it. It's very sinister. I would say coaches partake in this. A good coach can have phenomenal parental influence. I would say choir masters. Choir masters very much the work is analogous to coaching. Choir, team. Choirs are very disciplined. It's very difficult work. And choirs are notoriously tricky to deal with because they have a communal life. A choir is a strange animal. Social psychological terms. Priests will tell you that you can fall foul of a choir quicker than anything in a parish. And by crikey, you'll know it. A choir is no joke to, to face down when their dander is up. No, all of these reflect the classic position of Anbert, the two, who put the music of the Irish language into my head for the first time. You are putting music into that head. That's the core of parenting. I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother brought me with her when I was a small kid, I had the clearest memory of it, to go back to see the wonder of the world in our village, which was a set of twins who had been born. And when I leaned in over the pram and looked at the two little cherubs in the pram, who looked as if they were almost sharing some very serious secret with each other. You know that little old man look that, that a baby has? It almost could do with a pipe. My grandmother whispered to me, she said, they're angels. She believed that. Now a, bab- a child who has been baptised, who has brought into the life of grace, but is before the age of reason, is a moral angel. Is there, is angelic. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree and, and you'll certainly be seeing very, very soon 
again, Jordan Peterson's very entertaining and informative on this, is, is the way in which a child becomes autonomous, starts to fight back at you. But there may be no sin in that. It's just the child starting to come into himself or herself. But there's no doubt that from those two that the child sees. And I can't emphasise too strongly the two. You can say what you like to me. And I think a lot of the women who have brought up children on their own, and I saw it in the school, they are heroines. They are unsung heroines. They are gifted, but they should not have had to do it. I think you need to. I think it's a huge strain on a woman, on her own. And I've seen it with boys, particularly when they pass puberty. And they start to resent the authority of the woman. Look, you can go on to me all you want with all this woke stuff. I know what I've seen. And it is utterly natural. It's not taught. It comes on like clockwork. You could predict it. And I can't emphasise too strongly is what a disaster the whole area of masculinity is. And I, look, I'm not saying this to start some ridiculous rant that's downing gay people or downing this or that or the other. I'm not getting into that. We're Catholics. We're supposed to love our neighbour. We're supposed to love those we disagree with. Uh, I'm, I'm not getting into any of that vulgar, vicious nonsense. You concentrate on God and on his, on, on his mercy and on his, on, and on his commands. And on that, and you don't judge people. You have no warrant to judge people. But I, I, I'm just stating my sincere belief that it takes the two. And that remarkable dynamism, that dynamic that is set off by the contraposition of male and female, it's complementarity and it's contradictory nature at the same time. One and the same time. And it is, that dynamic acts, acts almost as an energy source in the life of the child and the raising of the child. These are reflections of God that the child sees. Rumours of angels. And a small child is talking to the angels. True love. And it's true, as Larkin said, and here I end. They book up your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man, it deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. All, all true to an extent. This is no joke. This is no joke. You'll end up tired and poor if you're a parent. It is the, the way of romance, the way of true romance, the way of love, the path of love, the path of the absolute. Is, it is no joke to continually walk the cliff edge. But you're called to it. The spirit will give you the strength for it. And the spiritual strength for it. Listen to me, I'm telling you, if you are the parent of a child, you are as far as that child is concerned. You are priest, prophet and king. You prophesy to that child. You teach that child. You are Israel, you are the church. You are the face of Christ. You are the face of God on earth. The first school, the first court, the first government. What a dignity. What a phenomenal dignity. And it is yours, you remarkable man, you incredible woman. It is you who get to turn to that solemn little face and raise your hand and say with all that great prophetic and hieratic authority, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. And you shall teach them thoroughly to your children. 
And you shall speak of them when you sit in your house and you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand. They shall be a reminder between your eyes and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Now, you get out there if you're a young parent and you start to prophesy. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. St. Brendan, pray for us. <laughs>